You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning, church. How we doing? It's good to see everybody. Uh, As mentioned, my name is uh, Rhett Butler, and I have the esteemed privilege to share, uh, continuing our series in uh, Reading Romans Backward, which is our source material. I'm going to focus today specifically on chapters, kind of second part of chapter one, all the way through chapter three. Um, At this time, before I do get in lesson, though, I I guess the preteens, teens, you guys have a lesson of your own, so I fare thee well. Have a wonderful time with uh, Mr. Thomas over to your right. Bye, guys. <laughs> preteens, sure, preteens, yes. Preteens? There was, a, there was a miscommunication when you played telephone. Sorry, my, my bad. Uh, that being said, a couple things before we get into lesson. Um, one announcement, July 11th after church, uh, Sunday, 1 p.m. Where are the singles at? Anybody? Barbecue. Singles. Barbecue. That, w- that was pretty lame. Singles. Barbecue. That was a little better. I'll give that a C minus, C plus maybe. UA plus. Everyone else? Hmm. So, Sunday, 1 p.m., July 11th, Butler's House, Casa de Butler. We'll give you the address a little bit later. We're going to have food catered for you. Okay? We are pescatarian, so we're going to be mindful of the fact that not everybody is that. All right? So, don't be afraid and think you're going to eat vegetables the entire time or cardboard or something to that effect. Okay? It's going to be delicious. Make sure you come out. If you don't, we'll track you down. Um, that being said, we do have a lesson today. Um, do I have anything else? No, that's it. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, title for today's lesson is the human condition, the human condition, right? And in this reading Romans backwards, the source material, we've been focusing on, um, really the, the context. Okay. Right. Cause Romans one through 11 is this deep Christian theology. You read Romans through 11, you can kind of get lost and rabbit hole and disappear. We can forget that there's very much a context of Roman house churches, right? People. Jews who became Christians. Romans who became Christians. Those that had more of the the religious pride and strict adherence to the law. Those that were kind of free and hedonistic and did where they wanted. Those that didn't have much. Those that had plenty. Those that maybe on the outskirts of society. Those that were, you know, right in the mix of things. Trying to come together and be a family. In reading Romans 1 through 3, it helps us set a couple things, one of which is just the common ground. Uh, if I look at Romans 1, I would say it's very much for those that would consider themselves part of the, the strong category. That would be the, the Roman, impetuous, do whatever you want. That's kind of the basis of that if you look in Romans 12 and 13. The weak category is more for like the religious person. So Romans 1 is all about this quote-unquote strong person. Romans 2 is very much for this individual that maybe grew up in church. And you didn't necessarily have like a lot of outward sins, but you had some obvious sins here in the heart. Romans 3 is like a catch-all. If Romans 1 and 2 didn't get you, 3 will. And so I have to keep it a little, it's not negative, but it just, it tackles a lot of sin, right? So that's what these chapters do. So I just want to kind of preface that before we get into this. So you're wondering like, why is Rhett talking about my sin the whole time? It's because that's what the material does. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. Again, the title is Human Condition. Point number one, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Have you ever said that phrase before? 
Have you ever studied the Bible with somebody and they said that phrase? Family or friends ever repeated that phrase? I'm a good person. I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't murder. I'm not an axe murderer, right? Um, I give to the poor. I, 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 I serve in a soup kitchen. I push old ladies across the street um, when they actually want it. Um, I open doors for people. They say they have two, you know, their bags, their hands are full. I open the door for them. I'm a good individual. I do good things. The Bible, um, hmm, it kind of says maybe not so much. <laughs> Let's read this. Romans 1. I'm going to have to go to this. Uh, I'm going to walk over here and read this. There it is. In verse 21, it says, For although they know they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. There's this idea, and even right before this, uh, Paul makes this argument saying that men are without excuse, that God has made his invisible qualities known simply by what is seen. You can look at the human body, you can look at nature, you can look at the stars in the sky, and all of it screams to the eternal power and divine nature of a creator. Yep. That there's, there's just too much that the patterns work. You could find math or geometry behind it. You're like, this, this screams for the notion of an of a intellectual design. Tangent, if you want to uh, look up Stephen Meyer, he has some great YouTube videos, and he focuses on the God hypothesis and kind of this, this type of notion gets really in-depth. You know, you look at that watch in the woods, you're not going to think, oh, that watch just grew up from the ground. Surely, there was some kind of hands at a foot putting all these gears together. God says, because of this fact, when you look at all that is physical and see me, that we don't have an excuse. And verse 21 says, unfortunately, we got to this point where we stop giving thanks to God. We stop glorifying God. We, we exchanged it right? He wants the relationship. It says that he set eternity in the hearts of men, this, this desire, right, for something. And we try to go all these different ways to, to fill it up, right? And what happens, we find out unequivocally that something's missing. But when we replace God, we do different things. And I, I have a couple, a couple of these written down. It says, therefore, God gave them over. In verses uh, 24 and 26 and 28, if you look at the Greek, it, it mentions this notion of God yielding or submitting, so he had this desire for us. He has this plan for us. He wants us close to him, but we, we fight him. God's sovereign will, our will. Yeah, I know what my parents say. Yeah, I know what church says. Yeah, I know what God says, but I'd rather do this instead. And what happens when we substitute a relationship with God? We become maybe a little more animalistic, more impetuous. We lack self-control. And we start doing this laundry list of things that you see in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. I'll say a couple of them. It says, worship of false gods. Well read, I'm in a post-enlightenment period. I don't necessarily worship things of stone, wood, and hay, and clay. But what do you worship? We all have something. Sexual impurity, homosexuality, greed, depravity, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip. Anybody here like to spill the tea? Does anybody know what spill the tea means? A couple of us do, yes? Talk about that tasty morsels of someone else's life. Oh, but I'm saying it to help them. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. 
That never happens in church, though, right? Never. Okay. Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> Slander, insolence, arrogance, boasting, inventing ways of doing evil, disobey your parents, no fidelity, you know, faithfulness, love, mercy, approving of evil. This makes me think of, you know, my own life. I would say probably 16 of those 18 I did before I was a Christian. I don't know how many afterwards, but it, it's gone down. So amen for the blood of Christ. But I think we have to go, you know, at times in our walk with God, we have to go back and kind of remember from whence we've came. We have to recall all these different things that, that God has spared us from. You know, I, I remember distinct moments being a 16-year-old kid. And for all intents and purposes, and maybe this is for the teens, I thought I had like the coolest high school experience this, you know, this one Friday night in particular. I went out, partied, had a good old time with my friends, dancing, uh, was immoral, took this person home, came back to my house, and at 3 a.m., all I did was cry. I'm getting emotional. I'm thinking, oh, ooh, ooh, got me. Mm. Man. Because I, I just wanted to please God. In my heart of hearts, you wouldn't know it. Like, looking at me, you wouldn't realize it, but I just wanted to do what was right. Like, God was, he was put himself on my heart, trying to make himself known, trying to raise my conscious level so I'd become more aware of him. And all I did was the opposite. And I did the opposite for several years. And if you're a, if you're a high school or teenager, that feels like an eternity. Like, if you're 16 year old, years old and you have guilt laid in conscience for like three years, that feels like four decades because you really don't have a concept of time. But just that feeling of wanting to do what's right, but so encapsulated, so entrapped in what is evil. Point number two, still think you're a good person. <laughs> Romans 1, hopefully that list of 18 things, something got you, right? If it didn't, then Romans 2 will. In Romans 2, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 4. It says aspects, I'm sorry, make sure I get this right, wrong slide. You therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. There's this interesting thing that we can do. It's just human nature, right? We like to compare ourselves to other people. We like to look at someone else and you know, exude some sense of superiority based off of whatever arbitrary reason. It just, it's, it's in our nature. I look at you, I'm like, well, I got better hair than you and I'm bald. Or... <laughs> I, I really like your shoes. I wish I had them. Or I have better shoes. Um, you know, it's, it's, you fill in the blank. His car, ah, it's it, that one tire. It's a donut. When are they getting that fourth tire? I don't know when they are. Um, you, you can have, I put down a list of these things, right? <clears throat> it can be anything, really. Um, there's a couple right there. It says, let's just look at it for the sake of uh, our discussion today. Uh, looks, face, hair, height. It can be weight, clothes, house, cars, kids, professional success, bank account, social media account, intellect, your academic pedigree, 
athleticism. I scored four touchdowns in the state football game in 1983, like Al Bundy and Polk High. Uh, vacations, where do you summer? Pets, shoes, fill in the blank. We like to compare. We like to make judgments. And those are just superficial judgments. That's not even a spiritual one. I'm thinking from a macro level, there's an entire generation, 30 and under, that aren't really interested in church. Think about that. One of the reasons is, and this is a general statement, it's a blanket statement, I fully appreciate that. But I think if you do some anecdotal and maybe some more sophisticated grounds of statistical analysis later, I think we might find a lot of that goes around judgment. And whether or not they feel like church is a safe place. Whether or not we feel like church is a safe place. We all say that. Like we want to be able to tell whoever our sins, but a lot of times we're very reserved. Why? Because at some point in time we felt this type of judgment. And so we might have a circle, a select few, because we know anything beyond that, what are they going to do when I fully spew out the vulnerability of my life? It's important that being in church, like I've been in church for 20 years, that's, that's a potential issue because I, I'm solely, you know, I've drifted away from the Romans 1, that list of 16 out of 18 sins for which I committed. I think there's only, yeah, only probably two categories I didn't get. Drift away from that and you get to this place, if we're not careful, of, of moral superiority. We have our little bubble. We have our little group in church. That's with whom we congregate. Anything else beyond that, our noses go up. Have you ever seen that in a church setting? Are you ever guilty of it possibly? Yes. Romans 2 goes on further. I'm not going to read all this, but um, I, I think I actually want to do to 28, but we'll just do this verse right here. It says, now if you call yourself a Jew, and you can, you know, relate this to being a Christian, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and it goes into all these different things. It mentions about if you think you are, you know, a light, a dark place, an instructor uh, for children, you know, if you, all these monikers that we try to attribute to, to being the light of the world or the salt of the earth or someone that's in a position to, to teach the rest of the people. The thrust of it brings up, and it's the H word. It's the H word that it's, it's a bad term in religious circles. Anybody know what it is? Hypocrisy. It brings up this notion that do you do the things that you tell others not to do? Some are easy, right? Maybe at one point in time in your life, you stole. You're like, well, I don't steal anymore. That's not a big deal. But going to the parts of our life that we do commit. Oftentimes, if you've been in church for a long time, it's not so much the, the outward, obvious, you know, sins of commission. It usually becomes more of the things, <coughs> excuse me, becomes more the things, the good that God is calling us to do, that we don't. He's calling us to be more. He's calling us to say more. He's calling us to be really a movement of his people, but then we can pull back. We can take our lives back. Our, our lives, our paneled houses are looking fantastic, the scripture says. But the house of the Lord may have gaps in the wall, serious needs that go unmet. And then you push us out to the, push us out to the rest of the world all the needs that are outside of our little walls. Romans 2 tackles this notion that if we're going to be these, these, these people that have maybe religious meetings and, and different things that we do on a consistent basis as we try to follow God and hear His commands, that we make sure that we are a people to the best of our ability above reproach, that we are a people that don't just say all the things that others need to do, 
that don't put up these boundaries because of what we approve. The Bible says, blessed is a man that does not condemn himself by what he approves. So being able to pull those judgments back, maybe perhaps offer up some mercy instead. Point number three. Just to be clear. (laughs) No, Rhett, you kept it negative for about like 15 minutes. We're almost done, okay? We're almost there. Romans 3, it says this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have together become worthless. There is not one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their po- the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the catch-all statement. We all sin. We all grew up in sin. Why is that so important? Why? Because it's impossible to truly draw draw close to God until you appreciate the gravity, the ramifications of our sin. How do you move forward when you can't admit you have a problem? How do we come together as a people when we don't think we have a problem with sin? When we appreciate the magnitude and and the power and how much sin desires to overtake our lives, what, what should that do? That should draw us together. I mean, we've been in the past 15 months maybe since like Vietnam, a, a, a time in our American society where we're being pulled apart. Yeah. And some of those things needed to happen. Some of these things need to occur and come out, 100%. But do we allow those things to continue to divide us? Do we go back to a point where we can all agree on and say, you know what, we need each other because we are all in this struggle of sin together. Amen. No matter where we stand on a political spectrum, no matter what you've been through as an individual, do we all have this same struggle? Yes, we do. Do we all need each other? Absolutely. Philippians 2, on a personal level, says this, and I think this is one of the biggest takeaways I want us to have. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. So Romans 1, 2, and 3, ideally, when we talk about sin, you know, for those three chapters, it should get, to, get us to a place where we want to work at our salvation with two things, fear and trembling. What, am I terrified of God because he's going to strike me down with lightning? No. You have a, a sincere reverence for your Father and your Creator. You look at God with a sense of awe and wonderment. You operate with our time here on earth, with a sense of humility. It says that in scriptures, that who's the one that God esteems? What does God require of us, right? To act justly, to be humble. He's looking for the spirit that says, you know what? You understand how much you need me. And you depend on me like a little child. Hopefully, Romans 1 through 3 gets us to a place where we are working our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because we want God to work through us. And he can't do that if we're in the way. He can't do that if Romans 1 and 2 and 3 
characterize most of our experience as a Christian or as someone on a spiritual journey. Hopefully, this passage describes your walk with him. That being said, guys, I just want to say one thing. Our family is so happy to be here. We're so happy to be a part of the South Bay Church. We really are. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Nothing to do with the sermon at all, but just a personal note. To see this group, like you don't always get this picture, right? And I'm looking at everyone, and most of your faces are relatively, you know, attentive. <laughs> there, there's, there's a couple where I'm like, are they playing crossword or something on the phone? What are they doing? On the teens, I'm like, what, what app is that? Uh, I'm just kidding, you're not. <laughs> I saw some of their faces, they're like, no, we didn't do that, Rhett. What are you talking about? Um, we're so happy to be here. We're so excited to see all the things that God already is doing. Um, my hope and my prayer for this sermon is that we get to a place we just desperately need God and we need each other. Amen. And we're like, Red, I, I know that. Like, that's not, you know, mind-blowing conceptually. This isn't completely revelatory in nature. But I, I'm not necessarily trying to appeal to your intellectual side in that respect as much as I'm trying to get to our hearts. Come on. So that we don't just talk about things and philosophize, but that we live out that which we say. Guys, I love you very much. At this time, we're going to focus on kind of switching gears to communion. All that Romans 1 through 3 highlights the need for a Savior, yes? yes? Romans 3 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. As you think about communion this morning, I, I request, I humbly request that you try to visualize yourself at the foot of the cross. We sing songs about that. You've heard about that notion multiple times. I want you to put yourself there for a moment. Just close your eyes. And I want you to see him. His wounds. His face. His eyes. The look of love that he has in the most painful of moments. For us. As we connect with our sin, remember the price that was paid, the blood that was shed. So as we work out our salvation with much fear and trembling, that we have all the motivation that we need. Let's pray for communion. Father God, we thank you so much to be able to be together. To worship openly, Father, is a blessing. To be in this parking lot, God, is a blessing. I know we want to be inside. But to see each other, God, to pray, sing praises to your name, to hear your word preached, to have conversations and drink rich of the fellowship, God, this is all because of you. Help us, Father, this morning to connect to the cross. Help us to remember our sin, how much you've brought us from, all the muck and mire from which you've pulled us. And as we operate through today and the rest of our week, God, that we live as living sacrifices for you, God. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.